that story? <clears throat> I like that, those moments of collective cringe. Where you can just feel everyone like, ah, you just, that feeling. Thank you, Kelsey. I, I, I think it was mentioned earlier, I just want to celebrate another moment that uh, young man Connor McEwen uh, was baptized in first service. And it was just always so great to see a young person make a very a thoughtful, wise, good decision for Jesus. And uh, very proud of him. And just wanted to make sure that you are aware of that. That's Steve and Nancy McEwen's grandson, uh, who's been coming to Sabbath schools and uh, Bible studies and, uh, and actually went through the whole Prophecies of Hope series with Emmanuel Beck and made a good decision uh, for Jesus. Church family, we're finishing the book of Ephesians today. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of curious to, to see something, to get some feedback just by show of hands. But, but if you particularly kind of appreciate uh, the idea of sermon series, be it through a book of the Bible or some topical series where from week to week it's tied together for a period of time, just curious, do you, do you like that? Is that appreciated? I, I know there's a time and place for just individual topics. Thank you for that. It's, it's really been fun to go through books of the Bible in this letter to the believers in Ephesus. And I just want to express that I, uh, we, Pastor Josh, Sarah, and I, we've really enjoyed sharing time with you over the contents of this letter. This letter that Paul wrote first as a prisoner in Rome, sent with a man named Tychicus to the believers living in and around Ephesus. But praise God that the letter was preserved under the mighty hand of God so that all believers of all time could also be enriched and blessed through Paul's writing. And we have this gift today. Paul's letter has been uh, inspiring. It's been spiritually challenging and encouraging. And it has been very practical in nature as well. And Paul has already, in the letter that we have gone through in this journey, he's already invited us to consider the, the very foundations of Christian faith. And what I want to do here for just a moment is I, I want to share with you, kind of by way of review, some selected words he wrote on some very important topics. And, and as I share this kind of review of our letter thus far, I just want to invite you to kind of listen to them in their categories and try to lock those categories away in your mind because I, I'll explain the reason I'm asking that here in just a few moments. And so just by way of a little bit of summary as we come to the close of the letter, Paul has lifted up the importance of truth. He has held high the value of truth when he wrote phrases like this indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus he also wrote in chapter 5 the fruit of the spirit is in part truth so he held high the idea of truth he also kind of held high the idea of righteousness the righteousness of Christ when he wrote things like this and that you put on a, a new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And then he additionally says, the fruit of the Spirit is righteousness. He held high the idea of the, the good news of the gospel. When he wrote there in the very beginning of the letter in chapter 1, the gospel of your salvation 
in whom also, having believed, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And then speaking about how that gospel, good news of salvation, was now fully inclusive, no longer just for one people, but for all people, he wrote that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel. So in his letter, he's, he's championed truth, he's lifted up righteousness, he's celebrated the good news of the gospel, he also spoke of peace. And he spoke of peace on two levels, that through Jesus, the, the fracture between God and man has been made peace, and between brother and sister in Christ, there should be peace. He wrote this, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made both one. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. And then he held high the idea of preserving peace, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Another major foundational uh, necessity in the Christian faith is that, faith. And he wrote much on faith in the letter that we've journeyed through thus far. Chapter 1. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe? A statement of faith. Uh, the key text and probably the whole letter. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And then chapter 3. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in Him, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So there's truth, righteousness, gospel, peace, faith, and then this big, beautiful concept of salvation. He writes in his letter, In whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. He even, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved salvation but now in christ just as you are once far off have been brought near salvation by the blood of christ and one more just a reference by way of you very simply he has elevated the idea of the word of god thy word is truth and jesus is the word in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth paul has presented us in his letter, so many spiritually enriching and encouraging words. So today, let's finish the letter as we observe how Paul brings so much of what he's already written, already shared, how he brings it so much together in a very meaningful way. Before we go further, let's have just a short word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, as we're in your word, we ask for your Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds, to give us moments of spiritual attentiveness. Lord, may your word come through. More of you and, and less of me. And I just pray, Lord, that whatever, uh, whatever message you seek to deliver to each of us individually, that, that our hearts may be open to receive it. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, let's pick up where we left off last week. It's towards right here at the end of the letter, Ephesians 6, verses 10 and 11. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles 
of the devil. Paul knows he's coming towards the close of his letter. He says, finally, it's kind of like in summation, just finally, let me just say this, just one more important thing is in his letter. He's drawing his letter to a close, and he addresses the church as his family, brethren. Brethren is not exclusive to women. It's just kind of a phrase they use to say, the church, my family. Finally, my family, let me appeal to you. And his appeal to them, it's very straightforward, is to be strong in the Lord Jesus and in the power of his might. But take note of this. Paul makes it very clear, not your strength, not your power, but be strong in the Lord, be strong in His, the Lord's power. Now that may seem like, okay, obvious, but that little clarification, it's not my strength, it's not my power, it's the Lord's strength and the Lord's power, that little concept is about to influence everything he's going to write next. What Paul is about to do is he's going to employ a kind of a, a word visual to illustrate being strong and powerful in the Lord, and that visual is that of putting on armor. In just a few verses, he'll begin to describe the armor. But notice again, a very deliberate notion. Whose armor is it? It's the armor of God. It's His armor. Not our own armor. God's armor. And why do we need to put on His armor? Paul says, so that we might be able to stand against the deceptions of the devil, the wiles of the devil. Not just kind of barely stand and make it through, but to stand in a stance that is strong and powerful against the premier enemy of God in his armor. Paul now takes just a few sentences to emphasize a little more what he means by the wiles of the devil. Look at this, next two verses. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. We could unfold each of those little phrases, but we don't need to to kind of get the overall point. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Paul is saying our battle is not ultimately against other people, flesh and blood. Yeah? There are people who are in this world that are either knowingly, more often than not ignorantly, agents of the devil... But our battle is beyond them to a greater evil power. Paul is saying we don't wrestle really against each other, other people. It's against far greater things. Our battle of faith, our battle to maintain a dependency upon Christ in this life is a battle against the devil and his host. And Paul describes it as principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and the host of wickedness in the spiritual realm, the heavenly places.
appear. Apostle Peter spoke of this battle with the forces of darkness in, in this way. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in faith, knowing that the same sufferings as are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Now listen, I want to just speak a few words that I believe are important. Paul has just told us in a very emphatic way, our battle is against darkness, evil, the devil. But the devil and his demonic agents do not deserve our focused attention. Okay? They don't deserve our focused attention. If you begin to say, I'm seeking where the devil is, you're giving him your focused attention. And in so doing, you're beholding him, not Jesus. The devil and the spiritual forces of darkness do not deserve our worship. They do not deserve our focused attention. That's true. But at the same time, it is to our spiritual detriment to deny that the devil's existence and his attacks are real. And so there's kind of a tension there that we have to keep in mind. He does not deserve our focused attention, but at the same time, it is foolish of us to forget and lose sight that there is an enemy in this world, and he is seeking to pull us away from God. There's a great controversy going on. There's a battle going over the hearts and minds of men, women, humanity. That battle is between Christ and Satan, and we are in this battle, but we must remember our own role in the battle. What I mean by that is simply this. We can't always hide behind the idea, well, the devil made me do it. I made, a, I made a conscious choice outside of the will of God. I, 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 I stumbled, I fell, and, and there was a moment where I made some choices that were actually in rebellion against God. It's not wise to say, oh, yeah, the devil made me do it. It's his fault, not mine. We are free moral agents. We have the ability to make our choices. Yep, there's a war going on, but that war is over what choices we get to make. And so kind of removing the responsibility of our life choices over to the devil is not spiritually wise. What I'm trying to say is this. We are broken. We battle sin. And that side of our nature that struggles to surrender to God is what causes us to make our sinful decisions. And so, yes, our battle is against the enemy, but we also battle against self. And we must surrender self to Jesus. So Paul is saying, listen, realize the nature of the spiritual warfare that is going on. And so he presents these forces within realities of spiritual warfare, but then he appeals again. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. He says, put it all on. With God's armor, we can stand against evil. Your own armor, you're done. God's armor, you can stand in the strength and power of his might. 
Paul is very serious. In, in just a few short words, he has appealed twice, a double appeal, to put on the armor of God. He now is going to describe this armor by using this word image of a soldier's equipment. And before I read it, remember just a few moments ago when I shared some of those foundational truths, these ideas of the Christian faith that Paul has already kind of spoken on in his letter? Truth, righteousness, the gospel, peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God? Notice how in these few verses, Paul is pulling them all together in a profound metaphor of the armor of God. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Profound. Pulling it all together in a very compact and visual way. It's been suggested, and, and it's a very plausible suggestion, that Paul's inspiration to kind of use this image was rooted in the fact that at the time of the writing of this letter, he was under Roman arrest. He was in a type of custody, and likely by the door, in the room, or maybe even chained to him was a Roman soldier. And Paul's inspiration was just this visual of seeing this soldier and saying, I can use that. And that very much could be the case, but whether, whether or not that's true or not, Paul's image is very effective, isn't it? And, and whether it was inspired by a soldier right there next to him, he knew what Roman soldiers looked like. His entire life experience had witnessed Roman soldiers roaming the empire in Jerusalem and beyond, keeping order in the streets, wearing all of this equipment of a soldier. And notice this. I don't think it's a profound effect to its theology, but it seems like that Paul's description, the order is given in how a soldier might put them on. Kind of the assembly. I put this on, put this on. For example, you wouldn't put the helmet on before the breastplate. The breastplate goes on before the helmet. It seems like it's an order of how to put it on. And so kind of here's how it goes. There's a belt girding the waist. And this belt would be what a sword would hang off of, but it would also kind of gather up these free-flowing type of undergarments to kind of pull them close so as not to restrict your movement in battle. And Paul takes this idea of the belt and he attaches to the idea the idea of truth. Truth is a weapon against the falsehoods of the enemy. Next, there's a breastplate. A rigid armor that would protect the, the vital organs of your core from the blows of battle, both from the front and from the back, just kind of protecting this whole portion. And Paul gives this breastplate a spiritual application as well. He calls it the breastplate of righteousness. Standing right before God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, enables us to stand strong against the enemy. And then comes the the battle shoes, which in his day were kind of high-laced sandals. And that may not sound like very great protection in battle, but far better than being barefooted. Shod feet 
were feet ready to move into battle. And Paul looks at these sandals and he connects them to the gospel of peace. One wearing the armor of God is, is ready to move in the good news and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the next image of this description that Paul is employing is the, the image of that of a shield. And there were a couple of words for different types of shields. And, and the word employed here spoke of a rather large rectangular shield. It would have been made of, of layers of wood stretched over with leather. And if they were anticipating battle, they would soak that shield of wood and leather in water prior to the battle. And Paul connects this defensive shield with the idea of faith, the shield of faith. Faith is trusting in Christ, trusting in who Jesus is, and trusting in who we are in Jesus. And Paul goes on to say that this shield of faith will extinguish the fiery darts thrown by the wicked one. And, and sure enough, his description is very much in the time and place of his culture. One of the nasty kind of weapons of war was a dart designed to be thrown by hand. And on the tip of this dart, they would wrap rope fibers. They would dip those rope fibers into something like a, a flammable pitch or tar. They would light it with a flame and throw it into the fray of battle. But with the shield, as the dart would sink into the shield, the soaked wood and leather would extinguish the flame. Just as Paul is describing that faith in Christ's power protects us from the attacks of the enemy. The, the next implement of warfare, the next uh, equipment of a soldier Paul uses is that of a helmet. The helmet was armor specifically designed to protect the head in battle. And Paul offers the word image of the helmet of salvation. When our lives have been redeemed and salvation has been secured, we've already won the battle and assured the ultimate victory. And finally, this the image of the soldier's armor is Paul includes the sword. And typically, this sword isn't this kind of, not this long kind of idea of pirates fencing. It was probably more of a, a short sword, maybe a, two feet long. A double-edged sword used to attack and to defend. And Paul ties to this idea of the sword that would be hooked upon the belt in the hand in a moment of battle. He ties it to the Word of God. God's words are power. Thy Word is truth. And Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus used the Word of God to defeat the temptations of the devil in the wilderness. Do you remember there after the baptism and Jesus would say things like, It is written, the Word of God says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It reminds us of Hebrews chapter 4, that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The details of Paul's description of this armor of God, it's rich, but the overall emphasis to Paul's double appeal to put on the whole armor of God, it's pretty clear. He's saying, step into truth and Christ's righteousness and the gospel and peace and faith and salvation and the word of God. Again. 
whose armor are we invited to put on? Our own armor? No. God's armor. And recall that Paul made that very clear. Not your strength, not your power, not my strength, not my power, but be strong in the Lord Jesus. Be strong in the Lord's power. Did you know that in the Old Testament, God and or prefigured Messiah is described as wearing this very armor? Listen, the Apostle Paul was a brilliant man. And the Apostle Paul was very, very well educated in what we call the Old Testament Scripture. Remember, the Apostle Paul, raised in the schools of the prophets, if you will, fast-tracked as a young man, as a, as a special individual in the Jewish nation, a young man tracking to be a Pharisee. Trust me, he was brilliant and extremely educated in the Scripture. And the Scripture of his day is the Old Testament that you and I have in our Bibles. And I believe that as Paul was describing the armor of God, his mind was connecting with the images of the Old Testament Scripture that spoke of how God wore all these same elements of armor. Let me share with you this, a sampling at least, mostly from the book of Psalms and Isaiah. In the Old Testament Scripture, God is depicted as wearing a belt. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. In the Old Testament image of God, Isaiah 59, 17, a breastplate. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate. A breastplate of righteousness. In fact, the Bible kind of even indicates a picture of, of the good news being delivered by feet shod with the gospel in Isaiah 52, the very end of verse 6, that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. This is God. How beautiful upon the mountains and the feet of him who bring the good news, who proclaims peace, gospel of peace, the feet, gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things, who proclaim salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Bible even depicts God as wielding a shield. In Psalms 35, plead my cause, O Lord, with those who strive against me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and stand up for my help. A shield to step into our battles. God is the Redeemer putting on both a breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. A helmet of salvation. And God as a protector, wielding a sword. Psalm 17 and 45. Arise, O Lord. Confront him. Cast him down. Deliver my life from the wicked with your sword. Gird your sword upon your thigh, Almighty One, with your glory and your majesty. When Paul referred to the armor of God, he was referring to the revealed Scripture armor of God. 
when you choose Christ as your Savior, when you choose to place your life within His life, when you call out to God and ask Him, cover me, God, and hide me within you, you have been cloaked in the armor of God. This morning in first service, we witnessed Connor's baptism. And that moment for Connor of saying, I choose Jesus. And I want to seal that decision through the waters of baptism. In that moment, we don't often think of it this way, but the armor of God was put on Connor. Because it's not his armor. It's God's armor. And if we are in Jesus, then we are in his armor. And in his armor, you have strength. You have power. You're able to stand against the enemy. With his armor, you have victory. In his armor, you have been given and you are covered by truth, righteousness, the gospel, peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. What good news it is. That as we live this life, we don't need to live it in our own power, but His power. Paul's letter is almost completed. And as he visualized for us, as the believers who would read this letter, he visualized the idea of the believer equipped with the armor of God, he then appeals for prayer. And he says this, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, be watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, and for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak as boldly as I ought to speak. Paul asked the reader to pray. And he really even doesn't even break stride. It, at verse 17 to 18 is kind of mid-sentence. And it's not associated with some description of a equipment of a soldier. But yet it's in the same flow of thought. That is to say, prayer could easily be argued as the greatest weapon of our spiritual warfare. Paul asked the reader to pray always and, and pray your request in the power of the Spirit. Be watchful in prayer. Persevere in prayer. For prayer is our greatest weapon in this spiritual war. Jesus said to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, why do you sleep? Rise and pray lest you enter into temptation." Just glimpses of the power of prayer in the spiritual war. Prayer unites us with one another and with God. Prayer brings Jesus to our side and, and gives to the fainting, perplexed soul a new strength to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. Prayer turns aside the attacks of Satan. Equally profound, we must have on the whole armor of God and be ready at any moment for a conflict with the powers of darkness. When temptation and trials rush in upon us, let us go to God and agonize with Him in prayer. He will not turn us away empty, but will give us grace and strength to overcome and to break the power of the enemy. Satan trembles when God's children 
covered in God's armor, persevere in prayer. Returning to the text, Paul makes a prayer request for himself, just saying, listen, please pray for me that I might be able to speak the gospel and to explain boldly the mystery of the plan of salvation of the gospel. All I want to say to that is this, church family, I, I do not hold myself up in any shape or form as some modern-day version of Paul. But I appreciate your prayers so much. And I humbly ask, please continue to pray for me that I might speak rightly for God. Paul then writes a very short explanation concerning the man who was tasked to deliver the letter to Rome. I just want to read it to cover it. No real comment. But he simply says this. Here's the guy bringing it, and, and here's what this letter is about. But that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Paul then closes his letter. And as often is the case in Paul's writings under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Paul had a beautiful way of speaking blessing over the reader. And as we close this letter today, we were reminded that there was a gathering of believers there in Ephesus. And they have listened with rapt attention the words of this letter. And as the letter comes to a close, Paul speaks a blessing over them through the power of God. And though that blessing was originally intended for that group, Paul has preserved these words so that all believers of all time who would entertain this letter and hear it might also have Paul speak a blessing over them. And so today we close the letter, and I just want you in your mind's imagination to put yourself in that place and to say, I am hearing Paul, under the power of the Holy Spirit, speak a blessing over my life. Peace to the church family, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Our Father in heaven, again, may your word work its fruitfulness in our lives that fills us up and spills over into the lives around us. And Lord, in this life that we are now living, Help us to daily confess you as our Lord and Savior and to hide ourselves in you and step forward in this life knowing that your armor is upon us. He who is for us is far greater than he who is against us. In your name we pray, amen.